Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. 14th and G coming to you from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas in a sparsely populated downtown Washington, D.C. It is August. Both the House and Senate are recessed, but there is no shortage of things going on. A pandemic resurgence, vaccines and boosters, machinations over infrastructure winding through Congress, and of course, an increasingly horrific situation surrounding the U.S. pullout in Afghanistan. You know, all of these issues play more or less into themes of competence, what is increasingly seen as a succession of failures. And on the fundamental questions that confront any nation, war and peace, economics, and public safety. And that just happens to be the topic of our quarterly slide deck, authored by our founding partner here at the firm. He puts the Melman in Melman Castagnetti and even signs it on my paycheck. Bruce Melman, welcome to 14th and G. Dean, always great to be with you. Bruce, just a little uh, look back here. Uh, your slide deck entitled The New Gilded Age came out in late 2017. Apple shortly thereafter became the first trillion dollar company. And today, billionaire CEOs race one another on space rockets. Uh, your quarterly slide deck, Knowns and Unknowns, on Black Swan events came out in January of 2020, and the pandemic hit America in March. This quarter, titled Failures Fallout, uh, came out last Thursday, just ahead of the tragic failure of our pullout in Afghanistan still unfolding. Bruce, are you a bit psychic? Well, first of all, Dean, as my investment track record demonstrates, I have no idea what's <laughs> going to happen. But I think it also that that's a pretty good case why the next slide deck ought to have an optimistic theme. You know, how about everything is awesome? Wouldn't that be a good title if that proved to subsequently be true? I feel like I feel like we could use it. You know, I want to get into the thesis of, of failure fallout and in, in, in this this uh, this quarter's slide deck. One of the conclusions you come to, though is that while our eyes are focused on one crisis, there's usually something we're not looking at that's unfolding at the same time. Any thoughts on while we're all focused on COVID and pandemic, what, what are we not looking at? Yeah, that's the last slide in the deck to try to end both in an optimistic, but at least head scratching sort of way. And Alan Murray at Fortune in his daily CEO letter picked up on it. If you were to say what the biggest news story was in 1994, uh, the, the, those who measure it would say it was when the Republicans, Newt Gingrich, captured Congress. Yet if you ask what the greatest long-term impact was in 1994, it was probably Mark Andreessen's launching of Mosaic, the world's first web browser, and the real WWW you know, takeoff. Same in 2001, obviously the biggest news event was the 9-11 attacks. But for greatest long-term impact, it may have been China joining the World Trade Organization. 2007, the mortgage foreclosure crisis was capturing all the ink, but the birth of the iPhone probably transformed the world the most. Right now, and quite reasonably so, we're all focused on the media is overwhelmingly writing about the COVID pandemic. But what's 20 years from now, 30 years from now going to have proved to have been the biggest, greatest long-term impact? I don't know. Um, my gut tells me it could be something around mRNA or like the breakthroughs in protein folding, artificial intelligence uh, technology to understand how they fold and how they're going to fold. Um, it could be some of the stories that we read about in energy storage, which really would unlock things such as solar and, and, and renewables and, and, and you know, radically allow us to change how the grid operates. 
Um, it may even be, it's not, it's not working from home. And I love Zoom of all the, uh, of all the video conference platforms. Uh, you know, look, people are still going to want to work with and in and around uh, other people. At the same time, you know, and I'm a history nerd. If you go way back, when they discovered electricity at first, all the factories were still located near rivers because that's where the power used to come from. And it took them a little while to realize they could move uh, factories to near transportation hubs or they could move factories to cities because electricity gave you the power that you no longer needed to be located next to a river to get. And I wonder if the experience we're having connecting virtually and using all of these various tools isn't going to ultimately rewire how business, at least uh, white collar business gets done. Well, I mean, it already has. And trying to get back into the office, uh, you know, with fits and starts here now with the the Delta variant circulating, we're hybrid for the foreseeable future. But let's talk about the thesis of of failure fallout and and this quarter's slide deck. And I just want to preface by saying, it is always easy to find fault and it's and Americans are very good at finding fault with our government but i think the united states still does it better than anyone else but it's hard to argue since 911 katrina the financial crisis the war in iraq now afghanistan pandemic uh, the crisis in policing the insurrection on january 6th we have had a series of, there's no other way to describe them, but crisis events in this country over the last 20 years. What does that, so these are policy failures, these are fa- failures of leadership, but what's the, what is the fallout from that? Well, I do think that the tie that binds, which uh, is the erosion of trust, whether it's trust in government or trust in experts or, or trust in our fellow citizens what these uh, 21st century failures that did hit a crescendo in 2020 have been doing and continue to do is undermine our confidence uh, in each other, in our country to be able to work things out, which is really frustrating and disappointing because as you know and I know, the history of America is ongoing improvement. It's never linear. Um, We backslide from time to time. There is nowhere I'd rather be a citizen of than America and no time I'd rather be alive than right now. So notwithstanding all of our various things, you know, would you rather be in the 1950s? Well, I mean, even if you're a white male, a white Christian male, no, um, you are, you, uh, you have so many advantages in your life today that you wouldn't have had back then to say nothing of the whole rest of the citizenry. Um, so the, the thesis was when you take a look at those sort of failures, what likely comes next, and, and we can deep dive into the historical examples, but usually what you found is, if you look across geopolitics, um, uh, markets, media, uh, science, tech, culture, and politics, those were the domains we looked across, you typically saw acceleration of innovative change, alternative approaches, often systemic reforms that expand freedom, while at the same time, you'd see a backlash against, all right, who failed? What was the strategy that failed? Let's change right. it. Sometimes who are the new disruptors and how do we control these guys? Because Bruce, you know, I have asked a series of guests on this podcast. We, we all sort of scratch our heads. We look at the, particularly in the Republican party, the rise of populism, the distrust of institutions, and we're all, we're all grasping for why and how to satisfy it. But you look back and, and the two seminal events at the beginning of the 21st century were a war in Iraq that I think a lot of people now agree was, was not a necessary war and the financial crisis banks and bankers got bailed out 
and lots of regular Americans lost lost everything. These two crises, more than anything, the rise of the Tea Party uh, and what is now morphed into a populism controlled by Donald Trump. Well, you were right. Although, Dean, isn't that half the story? It was the rise both of the Tea Party and the Occupy movement. And I would argue the Occupy movement is the energy behind Bernie Sanders, social justice Democrats, you know, uh, the defund the police movement. A lot of that uh, came from the same exact crisis And frankly, the same concern. Republicans took it in the government sucks Tea Party approach, but the Occupy movement took it in the government's in bed with uh, business. And we need to, to, uh, to, you know, both were storming the same gates, just maybe the front gate and the back gate. So how, how, how in the past, uh, you, you run through some historical examples, how in the past has trust in institutions in leadership been regained? Does it just take a singular charismatic figure to come along and put the genie back in the bottle? Or is this just something we deal with ongoing? Yeah, I wish uh, I wish it were as simple as, you know, you find a Reagan or an FDR or whatnot and, and, you know, wave a wand. It's an evolution. It's always been an evolution. There'll be things that are moving steps forward. I mean, thinking about after the failures of World War I, Spanish flu and the 1920s depression, we did expand freedom with suffrage for women, the jazz age. Um, after the Great Depression, Pearl Harbor and World War II, again, you, uh, we had a, uh, a desegregation of the military. We had Brown versus Board of Education, the Vietnam Watergate stagflation uh, crises that we were feeling bad. Well, we gave 18-year-olds the constitutional right to vote, you know, and civil rights continued to make uh, important progress. I've, I've got as many reasons for hope right now. Think about innovations, Dean. After those cri- the crises in the, in the 19-teens uh, and 20s, um, cars, radio, telephony. The, the ones of the Great Depression, the World War II era, followed by flight, TV, penicillin, Vietnam, Watergate, stagflation, followed by PCs, cable TV, GPS, and crazy amounts of technology. You know, I, I really do think that if the good news sold, if, me, if the media right. had it within their economic <laughs> interest because they could get clicks and things to highlight lots of positives, there's some really exciting things that are happening in technology. There are. And you talk about this accelerative effect of, of crises, of failures, and we see, we see it everywhere. I mean, we talked about the, the, the hybrid work model. We're, we're doing everything, uh, many things virtually now. Geopolitically, the separation uh, with China, we see it in technology. We see it in the media, which is becoming more and more atomized to, uh, to an a la carte taste, whatever your politics are, more and more refined, there's a there's a news outlet for you. You're, you're right. Um, you know, vis-a-vis U.S.-China, uh, I remain hopeful. Like, I don't know that the, tra- I, I, not only I don't know, the trajectory we were on was not sustainable. The, the idea of constructive engagement, allowing China into the World Trade Organization because they would liberalize and they'd be like us, didn't prove accurate. Because they're um, horribly bad actors. Well, certainly the communist system uh, and, the, you know, their their approach to individual rights, their approach to geopolitical reality, their desire to be uh, the world leader, when uh, which they view as their rightful place. And we think world leader is our rightful place. If, if you're, you know, seeing it from their perspective, we don't want to share uh, our, uh, our dominant position. I agree with you. I don't think on human rights. I don't think on intellectual property. I don't think on lots of things they are or we're heading where we wanted. So therefore, the current U.S.-China growing friction, hopefully, 
can lead to a, a more responsible China and a healthier long-term and sustainable relationship. You, you mentioned the media atomizing, and, and I called it substackification. That's a really interesting trend. Uh, and I think that's one that has a massive downstream impact on everything else, on politics, on geopolitics, on culture. You know, when, when America felt more cohesive, the, you know, the old gatekeepers, you had a local phone monopoly, you only had big, the big three networks. There were some national papers and magazines. They had minimal competition in their lanes. So they were all trying to appeal to everybody. The bad news is a whole lot of worthwhile voices didn't get heard, but they uh, they informed more likely than affirmed. And they were pretty aggressive and robust at killing disinformation. Americans had a shared reality in the ballot box and thinking about issues. Yeah. And you know, I, you we, know, we, sticking on China here for a second, because it's they are communist, yes, nominally, but they have taken all the the worst aspects of of the old Soviet regime, the authoritarianism, the dishonesty on the world stage, the espionage by any means necessary and combined it with some form of market economics. And now, uh, you know, I go back to that. I love that John Stewart line, uh, you know, the, the Wuhan lab and the COVID outbreak. Uh, oh, there was an outbreak of chocolatey goodness in Hershey, Pennsylvania. You know, it's uh, it begs belief that this, uh, whether accidentally or intentionally, didn't didn't come out of that lab. Does that finally bifurcate, I mean, drive the hard wedge between the West and China? And does Bruce, does this, I mean, the Cold War for all of its awfulness and, and the threat of nuclear Armageddon that people lived under for two generations, but it enforced order in the world. And is is that maybe one of the fallouts of, of what we're dealing with now? So interestingly, I, I've written about this in the uh, deck called D-Global. The post-World War II bipolarity, U.S.-Soviet Cold War, had lots of downsides, you know, where as kids were doing duck and cover type drills. But it did, in a lot of ways, maintain ultimately the, the uh, superstructure necessary for a world order. The chaos has been from 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, to 2019. That was a a unipolar world of hyperglobalization. When you might say we've gone back to a bipolarity, personally, I would probably date it to the great financial collapse. So I might date it to 2009 when they in China, uh, you know, invested infrastructure. And let's be honest, the the global uh, conflagration that was that what is it weapons of mass destruction uh, of from Wall Street. That's us. Right. So somewhere there's a podcast in China and they're talking about America, bad actors, and they're talking about how, you know, the entire world suffered a giant global financial collapse because Wall Street was trading stuff that they didn't know. They didn't understand. That was a total sucker bet and a sucker play. And none of them, you know, none of the capitalists went to jail and nobody had to disgorge their bonuses. So they're probably saying bad things. What I think is interesting right now, Dean, is when you look at China, which under President Xi inflected, it's no longer capitalism with Chinese characteristics. It's populism with Chinese characteristics. You know, the populism that we're seeing is what Mexico's seeing under AMLO, the Brexiteers and Boris Johnson, Modi in India, you know, Donald Trump. You're seeing it from China, too. I think it's a global populism. So this is so G's attempt to corral the biggest companies. He uh, Jack Ma went into seclusion for some number of months. All of this, you know, all of this rhetoric coming out of the Chinese government. Uh, it, it's more of a it's sort of a populism from the top down is well, it, it, as a way to co-opt what might be a grassroots movement. 
Yeah, but isn't every American historically, isn't every American populist demagogue top down? You know, they claim that they're doing it on behalf of the people there, but so did Howie Lo- Huey Long and not Howie, Huey Long. <laughs> and so did, uh, you know, so did Donald Trump. Regularly, what you have, populist leaders are at the very top and they claim to be at war against the elites who are also at the top, but they, you know, they, Hugo Chavez, I mean, they claim that they, the leader are working on behalf of the people. Why China would seemingly be breaking the most successful and celebrated companies. That's so interesting. I, I, you know, things like private tutoring, they're outlawing. You and I would say that's outrageous. And they would say, but that was increasing inequality. And we're worried our inequality is going to be bad as yours. Right. And some would argue that what they're doing is they're going after their tech platform companies because they're too powerful. Well, who else thinks tech companies are too powerful? Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio, a lot of Republicans, <laughs> let alone Elizabeth Warren. Right. You know, others would say, well, no, what they're trying to do, this is Noah Smith, who I thought really interesting. His observation is they're trying to redirect investment resources into things that are more relevant to winning a war. So hardware, infrastructure. Um, as a, and in that, I had a slide where I compared U.S. tech lash to the European tech lash to the Chinese tech lash. And what I found myself that was the most interesting, I don't know if it came across as an insight or there were just too many damn words on that page, but it's, you know, in all cases, all three areas are doing the same things. They, they want to protect consumers and what they see as threats to the social order. They want to re- rebalance economic power away from the, you know, these zillionaires who are too powerful towards the government, also to reduce inequality, but everybody is trying to promote national security and geopolitical power. So we're all subsidizing 5G and semiconductors. We're all pushing by local, by American from Biden, by China from China. We're all imposing export and import controls, and we're all demanding data localization, the US, EU, and China. Yeah, I think for all the ink the issue does get, I think in five years time, we will we will look back at this moment as, as really a, a new world order that, that's going to be dominated by China on one side and and the West on the other. I think that's what we're not talking enough about. China's not the monolithic society that we view it as. It's it is a highly complex society, and 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 Xi is uh, you know something we haven't seen since I guess Deng Xiaoping back in the seventies and eighties, uh, really consolidating power and and foregoing this. Uh, you get a new chairman every every what. 10 years or so. Well, until the new rules that President Xi put in place, so he won't get a new chairman necessarily. What's right. interesting is you picked, you know, the the other uh, the other leader of the party you picked is the guy who said to get rich is glorious. That is not where <laughs> President Xi seems to be going. He certainly is consolidating power. He certainly is focusing on uh, avoiding inequality, which is a threat to power. Uh, and he is certainly focused on increasing their capabilities. He wants to dominate the Pacific because that's their backyard. You know, it, it, if anything has shades of uh, James Monroe. Well, let's do a uh, great segue, Bruce. Let's do bring it back home. What all of this means, particularly for President Biden. It's, you know, it's just fascinating the way American politics is, is so cyclical uh, the presidents get that first six months in office and then the summer hits and, and almost inevitably, uh, by the time you get to the fall, they're in some form of crisis. But I mean, really on multiple fronts, Afghanistan, we've talked about inflation continues to spike, uh, the pandemic response. How's your summer of freedom going, Bruce increased crime in almost every urban center and really seems to be an increasingly runaway situation at the border. 
I mean, they are treading water. Uh, President Biden seems to be, in my view, taking the taking the well-trod route, uh, but often failed of hunkering down, of not answering questions. We'll be in we'll be in the uh, midterm 2022 election season here before we know it. Where's all this headed for the for the big guy? You know, I, I wish I had a different title for my slide deck. In part, failures fall out is a mouthful and quite negative. The better title, although taken, uh, might be the hangover. Yeah. <laughs> and and putting that in the Biden terms, Dean, I think the single biggest challenge that Joe Biden's facing right now is the ludicrously inflated expectations that, you know, uh, his ability, you know, the campaign contrasting against Trump, followed by the reaction of all of us, including the media in particular, to the uh, to the insurrection incited by President Trump, that led to such a rally around the president right as the vaccines are getting uh, distributed. And to give the administration credit, Jeff Seitz did a good job of accelerating that. But you made the point, it's cyclical. We've lived and we've watched politics long enough that anybody riding that high, let alone somebody who accurately described himself back when as a human gaff machine, right. you know, they <laughs> al- that always means you fall to earth. Because he was riding so much higher than than you know everything should have allowed him to be, the the hangover, the slam down was was inevitable. I think those who look, you and I both are highly confident the house is going to flip for you know a lot of reasons, structural redistricting and other things. But those who are saying that you know Biden is dead and it's over haven't watched the last fifty years of politics. You know, you go high, you go low. He is, things are not working right very well for him. The biggest challenge they've got is he keeps making these declarations that then, you know, themselves become the problem. Afghanistan, obviously, there was a extraordinary failure of planning. He didn't lose the war, but the execution of the departure is can't be anybody's plan. But the, the real dagger is that, you know, less than three weeks ago, the guy was like, there won't be helicopters on you know, leaving the roofs, like as, you know, cue the helicopters leaving the roofs. Blinken in front of the uh, the secretary of state in front of the committee. It's not going to collapse from a Friday to a Monday, uh, which is, which is exactly what happens. And I, you know, look, I, there is a, there is a credible case to be made for withdrawing from Afghanistan after 20 years, leaving thousands of Americans uh, perhaps stranded in Kabul, along with our, our Afghan allies who are pretty much subject to the death penalty if the Taliban get their hands on them. And of course, the scene at the airport and on and on, it's just, it just beggars belief. But, you know, at least, uh, at least the Biden administration had the foresight not to put a mission accomplished banner in the Rose Garden uh, when he declared the summer of freedom. Well, look, you're right. And I think commentators and observers giving Biden credit for having the guts to finally rip the bandaid off because it's not like another year or two years would have changed anything. You know, it's, it's, uh, we couldn't nation build. Um, so it's the execution of the departure for sure. I also don't think you're going to have a lot of voters showing up in November, uh, 15 months from now, you know, with kind of the remember Kabul bumper sticker on their car. But this is a, uh, this is a bit of a brand body blow. You know, this is a lot of chum in the water for the media um, this is a uh, administration that came in touting its unique expertise in foreign and global policy. And this is an administration whose momentum was already struggling as a result of the Delta variant and the surge of refugees at the border in the United States, you know, and, and persistent crime in several cities. So 
uh, a, a team that was due for a win and viewed this as a chance for a big W on the board, you know, troops home by 9-11, 20th anniversary, instead have a, a big L on their hands. And, you know, and again, while, while all the troops will be home, God willing, we, you know, it, 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 uh, it doesn't change the fact that this just worsens the hangover, the momentum uh, where the first half of the year was pretty positive and the third quarter is not. Well, we'll be getting our good friend and Democrat David Thomas in for a 2021 in 21 minutes, and we will do a deep dive on what all this means politically and for the midterms. Bruce, closing out, if you're sitting in a C-suite right now, if you're running a company and, and you're navigating supply chain disruption and you're navigating the half reopening, inflation, all of these issues, thinking to that one, one thing we're not looking at, what what ought to be on corporate leaders' radars that is not right now? You know, I'm not sure, Dean, I have plastics. I'm not sure I have the single... <laughs> single item, the single word, because they're all thinking about the known knowns in Rumsfeld parlance, such as inflation. If business leaders haven't figured out how critical planning is and how critical geopolitical uncertainty planning is, I don't want to invest in those companies. If anything, if nothing else, what the last six years has has shown me is how critical the, the work that folks like Ian Bremer and the Eurasian group are to really help folks understand happening around the world, to think scenarios, but to do more even than those guys on geopolitics do. You know, who's, if you're, if I'm a CEO, who's your science and tech advisor? How is that changing? No, it's not to say we should, you know, put all our, uh, put all our money into crypto, but rather uh, what are the world changing technologies? One of the things about the pandemic that was observed is the digital transformations that would have happened in years happened in months. The most successful companies in navigating this were those who had already begun those transformations. They'd already seen sort of where technology was going and where the future were heading. And they were really well prepared to seize what you know proved to be a, a sudden uh, imperative to make those big changes. The ones who were the hardest were the Eds, the Meds, and the Feds, the people who hadn't made the investments in where the future was going. Great counsel, Bruce. The one word uh, you were grasping for is Dogecoin. Bruce Melman, thank you for joining me on 14th and G. Great to be here, Dean. Thank you.